Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the Central African Republic continues to experience outbreaks of violence despite the recent peace accord. What is the outlook for this troubled country? And Guinea-Bissau is stumbling towards a presidential election. Will President Vaz win re-election despite opposition from his former political party? Plus, we discussed the recent Russia-Africa summit in Sochi. Putin wants you to believe that Russia is a great power in Africa. How do we avoid this trap? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. The government of the Central African Republic and 14 militia groups signed a peace pact in February. We call on all parties in Central Africa, the government, opposition and armed movements, to abide by this agreement and to know that they came here to make compromises and not to hold on to their positions. They came here to sacrifice for their homeland. President Twadera said the accord remains solid, but renewed fighting has raised questions about its staying power. So what's the latest in this war-torn country? Joining me to discuss Central African Republic and other topics is Simon Allison, Africa editor at The Mail and Guardian, Karen Monahan, a retired CIA officer with 32 years of experience working Africa and Russia issues, and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security. All right, I'll start with just a little bit background. CAR, Central African Republic's latest troubles began in 2012 when a coalition of rebels known as Seleka started to take over territory in the north and central region of the country. Eventually, they overthrew the sitting president, but have struggled to hold power. There was a surge of intercommunal violence, which had religious and ethnic dimensions, prompting fears of ethnic cleansing and even talk of genocide. A UN mission was deployed. Elections were held, brought to power uh, the current president, Chodera, but that really didn't end fighting and more militias emerged. The most recent peace accord, the eighth since 2013, included confidence-building measures such as establishing joint patrols and the creation of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, Twadera promised that he was going to form an inclusive government, but the assaults on civilians fighting among militias continue. Simon, you've done some really good reporting on Central African public, and I think in part because you found these novel ways to get the audience engaged, whether it's talking about the Boy Scouts back in January or your... your uh, parable of the stolen motorcycles that you wrote back in September. What is your latest thinking on the current trajectory of this country? Judd, first of all, thank you very much for having me. There are two things that are really worrying me about the Central African Republic at the moment. The first is that the peace deal seems to be fraying at the seams. Now, when it was signed, pessimists didn't think it was going to last very long, and it looks like the pessimists are being proved right. And one of the major problems here is that there are just so many different armed groups in the country. Um, even when they were negotiating the peace deal, they, they, they selected, I think it was 14 armed groups to talk with. And then by the time they had finished negotiating the peace deal, there were a whole bunch of new armed groups um, that were not included. So this has been part of the problem. But some of the armed groups who were involved, who did sign that peace deal, are also still engaged in various conflicts across the country. So the sort of level of almost almost anarchy in the country is really making it very difficult for any kind of peace deal to stick. And the second thing that is um, of concern to me is the increased engagement of 
Russia in the country. Um, there has been um, the presence of more than 200 Russian mercenaries who are there ostensibly to train the national army. This has been accompanied by quite a big um, public relations push. Um, there was a, a, a fascinating and a little bit disturbing animated video aimed at children about a, a beleaguered Central African lion who was rescued by a, a brave Russian bear. Um, that was, I think that was aired on national TV in the country recently. So you have this, this, this other foreign influence at play as well, and we're not entirely sure how that is going to um, unfold, but it is um, deeply concerning. And I should mention that the Russians also organize a beauty pageant. They did. All the, all the important things. Yes, exactly. So I want to do a little more on Russia, but first let's, let's pretend Russia isn't operating in car, and let's just talk about the challenge of a peace negotiation in a country like this. And Karen, you and I have worked these issues before, and we've seen a similar dynamic where rebel groups proliferate, whether that was in Darfur or in Congo. I think we can all agree that this peace agreement looks fairly shaky. What has to happen for it to sort of get back on track? Like, how do we save this agreement? Well, I think, you know, as, as you noted, this is the eighth peace deal uh, since 2013. And that should be enough to predict that this one's not going to hold as well. Um, not surprisingly, as in many of these domestic conflicts in Africa and elsewhere, there are economic motives and economic demands behind uh, much of the um, current fighting and the proliferation of militia groups. Everyone wants a piece of the pie. For many of these militia fighters, they have no alternative employment. If you can make money and get some of the dividends of fighting, you might as well keep fighting. There's also access to kind of local cattle routes that they're fighting for. There's access to diamonds, uh, the diamond trade. Um, certainly, I'm sure Russia is looking forward to benefiting from that as well. I think to begin to salvage a deal, you really need more of a bottom-up approach, mm. something that incentivizes the militia groups, or at least some of the militia groups, to put down their guns. Well, there's also this issue of international engagement. I mean, when we sort of hit the rocks on peace accords in Sierra Leone or in Congo, it was with lots of U.S. and British and foreign attention, and CAR kind of flints in and out of our... Uh, out of our focus, you know, you've got to really be working this issue and, you know, thinking about the individual motivations of each of these militias, both the leaders and the public. And there's this quote I love about the Central African public. It's not great for Central Africa, but the state ends at the 14th kilometer. It's never been a state that's been able to project power. So we're both dealing with the historical challenges of governing in car and then all of the instability, all of the problems that you raised, Karen. And unfortunately, the one thing that's getting a lot of tension are beauty pageants, cartoons about lion bear and the Russians. And Andrea, you know, when the Russians came in, and by the way, they came in because the UN Security Council gave them an exemption. Now it's been really problematic. And I thought, since we're going to talk a lot about Russia in this episode, it might be helpful just to start with a little bit on CAR and how you see how Russia fits into this. Yeah. So you noted it started with the exemption. And I think that's one thing to highlight is in Russian foreign policy, because Putin is a highly personalized leader, he has very few constraints on his power. And so he's able to be fairly agile and capitalize on small openings and seize on opportunities when as he sees them. And so that's what's happened here. They've been able to translate their ability to provide weapons to into much broader influence throughout the Central African Republic. But obviously, the big story 
here is the Wagner Group. You know, this is a trend, I think, in Russian foreign policy that we're seeing on the rise. Uh, the Wagner Group is backed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is, you know, also known as Putin's chef. He's also the one who's behind the Internet Research Agency, which was responsible for all of the election meddling in the United States. It's not just about providing weapons and other things in the security training, and that's certainly part of it. That's what they use to get in the door. But from the Russians' perspective now, they're increasingly using these non-state actors like the Wagner Group to advance Russian interests while giving the Putin regime plausible deniability. So we saw that first in Ukraine uses the Wagner Group to go in to fight a covert war, to hide casualties from the Russian public, and to mitigate backlash um, for his undermining the territorial integrity of another country. Then we see it again in Syria, the same thing going in, advancing Russian interests while giving the Kremlin plausible deniability about what's happening in Kar. It's much the same story, and as others have already highlighted, Wagner's presence has been associated with a lot of concerning things. We've had three Russian journalists who were killed as they were investigating what was going on there and interference in the information environment. Um, And so that's increasingly part of the Russian repertoire. I thought it was interesting in the recent conference in Sochi that one of the things that was raised was Putin would be happy to mediate in conflicts. And so here may be one of the opportunities they're looking for to demonstrate that they're a, a balanced mediator, particularly in the absence of others, the United States, the French or whatever, being involved in mediating this conference. And it's it's once they get this toehold, right? They said, OK, we're going to provide arms to the Central African Republican government and we're going to get an exemption from the arms embargo. And then say, well, we need trainers to help them work those arms. I don't know, Simon, if you you went to Bangui on your recent reporting trips, but Russian billboards uh, become a part of the, the fabric in at least the capital, but also in the diamond areas. There's a lovely anecdote. Um, the last time I was in Bangui, um, a lot of journalists and aid workers hang out at the Grand Café, which is a little sort of French bakery on the main drag. And uh, the Grand Café was having to fulfill these orders of something like two or 300 French baguettes a, a day that were being picked up by a Russian military vehicle and sent back to their base, which was based in the, in the, the emperor's old palace. That's just a small illustration of, of the way that, um, yeah, the, the Russian presence in Bangui is certainly very evident on the billboards, as you said, on the radio waves, um, on the TV and and you, you see Russians in and around the city. And it is certainly a change because the colonial power that has, of course, been most dominant in Bangui is, is France. And I think it's worth pointing out that France is still very powerful in that part of the world. It's not like Russia has a, a blank slate from which to work. We'll talk about it later on. But there was a kind of, I thought, very clever move by the French the end of last year where I think to to poke at the Russians, poke at the Russian bear, to use probably a very well-used metaphor, they wrote this resolution that was going to re-up the UN Security Council's endorsement or authorization of the UN mission, and they didn't mention Russia at all in that. And the Russian ambassador was so frustrated and furious. They ended up actually abstaining on the mission's renewal. So I thought the French had been playing a, a smart game by isolating, not elevating Russia's role. We in our show, at least I personally, want to give a little love to the countries that don't get a lot of attention. We're going to talk about Guinea-Bissau. 
Guinea-Bissau is about to hold presidential elections on 24 November. And this is a big deal because no civilian leader has ever managed to complete a full presidential term since independence in 1974. Yes, there's been lots of elections, but their heads of state have either been murdered or overthrown or died in office. In other words, whatever happens in Guinea-Bissau, it will be a landmark. This election is also notable because the current president, Jose Mario Vaz, also known as Jomav, is deeply unpopular. Guinea-Bissau President Jose Mario Vaz dissolved his Council of Ministers in a presidential decree announced on Monday. Vaz blamed an unnamed political crisis which he said had paralyzed state institutions and functioning of government. He fell out with his party, the PAIGC, and recently fired his prime minister, who has refused to step down. So clearly, in a free and fair election, Joe Mav is unlikely to win. So Simon, you've actually done some really great writing on Guinea-Bissau, and um, I'd love to hear your thoughts of the state of play. You know, as much as it's a great thing that uh, President Vaz is going to finish his um, constitutional term, the truth is he actually did finish his con- constitutional term already. I think it expired in June. And because of the the infighting between him and his ruling and another, another faction within his ruling party, he has ended up just staying in office beyond his constitutionally mandated term. So you could argue that uh, Guinea-Bissau is currently in the midst of um, a constitutional coup orchestrated by the president. So these elections are really going to be um, very crucial to, to the future of the country. Um, as you say, he, the president, is very unpopular, um, unlikely to win a free and fair election. However, he does seem to have stumbled across um, a source of funding which is helping his campaign, and no one's too sure where that funding is coming from. That's one worry. The other worry is that in a nation as coup-prone as this one, if he does win, if he does try to fix something, what will the likely reaction be? Um, I think everyone is very nervous of um, some kind of military action happening in Guinea-Bissau in the wake of that election. That's a really good warning. And um, I know there's a, a hearty band of journalists who are following Guinea-Bissau. And I'm hoping that both through our social media, Twitter, and what we do here and the journalists, we can kind of elevate the attention on Guinea-Bissau because it would be critically important for this country that has been racked by drug trafficking and other problems to start to see uh, democratic roots really get planted down. Okay, we're going back to Russia now. We're recording on October 25th. We just finished the first ever Russia-Africa Summit. Wrapped up Thursday in Sochi. President Vladimir Putin said the event is historic. He is surely hoping for that to be the case. Russia is far behind the West and China in African trade and investment. Economic and military projects were at the heart of Russia's bid for more influence. It is currently the continent's biggest arms supplier. There's been a lot of talking about uh, what's happened, but I thought maybe, Andrea, you could kind of give us the highs and lows. Yeah. The Russia-Africa summit also takes place on the heels of Russia's Valdai conference. A lot of people look to Valdai to gauge where Russian thinking is. And in that, the Valdai conference was focused almost entirely on Russia's pivot away from the West. So it was almost focused entirely on the East. And for the first time, Africa played a fairly or played a role in the Valdai conference, which I think is notable. Uh, And then you have the um, Russia-Africa summit, um, which included heads 
heads of state from 43 different countries. The guests of honor uh, were uh, Egyptian President el-Sisi and South African President Cyril Ramposa. And I guess there was a lot of joking because Putin and Sisi, I guess, were wearing almost the same outfit down to the tie. In terms of more substance, the focus of the summit was on trade. That's one of the key drivers of Russian foreign policy in Africa. They made announcements increasing trade in Africa from 20 to 40 billion over the next five years. Russia also wrote off $20 billion of African debt accumulated during the Soviet era, um, which is worth highlighting that Russia uses debt relief in particular to curry favor, especially for key UN votes. So you see them advancing a lot of their interest through the summit. The other highlight of this or key focus was arms sales. And as we were talking about in the context of the Central African Republic, Russia really uses those arms sales to tether African countries to Moscow. Um, They use it to establish and sustain these long-term relationships that they can cultivate over time. Um, And then I think the other key theme there was sovereignty, which is something that you hear Russians talking about repeatedly. It's a kind of tactic that I think that they're using to push back on what they see as U.S. unilateralism, U.S. dominance in the international sphere. So one of the key themes there was uh, African solutions to African problems with Russia's help. Um, But I think, you know, for all of the fanfare there, it was a little bit thin on deliverables, which I think kind of summarizes Africa's presence in Russia's Russia's presence in Africa. Um, It was largely a charm offensive because at the end of the day, Russia doesn't really have all that much to offer uh, relative to the United States, to the EU and China. Yeah, I think that that was absolutely deliverable. This was all, as I've written, theater. Right. The optics was the most important part of this event. And I was looking at um, TASS yesterday and there was the sort of the big picture was Al-Sisi uh, and Putin. I didn't recognize that they were in the same outfits. That was a good that was a good lookout. Russia is a key global leader. That's exactly what Putin wants. Simon, you've written some great pieces on this uh on this event, including uh, just a couple of days ago. And uh, in June, though, I really liked your article, which said Russia is a clumsy latecomer at Africa's superpower party. And it taps into this big debate all of us are having, which is, is Russia's return a threat? How should we think about this? How much play should we give it? Should we be doing this podcast about Russia and Africa? Um, first of all, definitely think we should be doing this podcast. Um, it is... Um, something we need to be looking at very closely, um, and yes, I you know that th- that article was slightly tongue in cheek, but I do think that Russia's um, sort of new scramble for Africa, if you want to put it like that, um, is very late to the game. You know, China's been doing this for what a couple of decades already. Um, the, the Western powers, of course, we're talking centuries. So. I, the Soviet Union was in Africa before, but but after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Russia really sort of let its African ties go, and now it is sort of trying to catch up. And what that means is only the lowest hanging fruit is available um, to it. So that that is why you see such a Russian presence in the Central African Republic. This is one of the poorest countries. Yes, it is, you know strategically located, but it's not that strategically located. Otherwise, there'd be much more interest from other superpowers in what goes on there. Um, And it is a country that is very cheap and easy to capture. And other efforts that Russia have made have also backfired. You know, in Madagascar, um, the BBC did an investigation uh, saying that uh, Russia sponsored six political 
candidates, uh, potential presidential candidates ahead of their election. Um, the only thing is all six of those candidates ended up losing. Um, so we're not looking at, um, we're looking at an energetic return to Africa, but not a particularly effective one. Having said that, um, of course, this is a major power with um, real clout. And an example of that was this week, while the Sochi summit was going on, while all the African presidents were there in, in, in Russia, um, the Russian Air Force sent two of its uh, Tu-160 nuclear-capable supersonic bombers to land at Vartikluv Air Force Base in Pretoria. Now, these bombers don't travel very often. They certainly don't land in foreign countries very often. The last time they did was um, in support of President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. So this was really a, a, a strong symbol um, that Russia was sending Africa, a strong message, except no one's too sure what that message was. Karen, uh, this was your beat at CIA. So do you agree with Simon? I agree, certainly agree with Simon that um, a number of Russia's um, efforts have been ham-fisted, whether it was backing Sudan's Bashir till the bitter end. Uh, Simon mentioned their their interference in the Mad- in elections in Madagascar, the corrupt nuclear deal with former pre- South African President Zuma, um, and then the re- recent dealings in the Central African Republic. Russia likes to play off Western countries. And to the extent that we let him do that, um, you know, he earns points. I mean, Putin has a number of goals and its overtures to Africa. First, it's its effort to regain great power status. That's something that Putin has been trying to do since since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He wants to be considered a player on the world stage. Um, and all of these efforts are, are designed to boost that. Uh, second, he wants to acquire friends and friendly votes in multilateral institutions, such as the UN Security Council, where there are three African members, and, um, and the UN General Assembly, among other organizations. Um, and so making friends and allies in Africa helps him on that front. Third, he really wants to make deals and um, develop and acquire natural resources. And he uses the oligarchs and state-owned companies or semi-state-owned companies to make those overtures. This is particularly important because a number of these country, a number of these companies cannot make similar deals elsewhere because they're barred by U.S. And, and European sanctions. So here's an opportunity, a new landscape, a new place to make uh, to make deals. And then fourth, on the the military relationships. I mean, as as Andrea noted, this is this is part of their strategy using both um, these private military companies, the Wagner Group, and others, um, and you know, they want to make military arms sales. Yeah. Andrew, do you have anything to add thinking about Putin's motivation? Well, I think uh, especially on the economic front, I think there's been a more concerted push, especially in the wake of 2014. And with the Russian sanctions, because so many markets are closed down in the West, I think then you've seen a much greater urgency to try to strike some, particularly on the economic front. I mean, this is a way we're talking about finding business deals for Russian companies, but it's particularly those companies owned by people who are close to Putin. And because right now Putin, um, I mean, domestically, his popularity is down. You had the big protests in Moscow over the mayoral elections, um, he, he needs. He is very cognizant that he has to keep people around him happy, and Africa provides an opportunity to do that. 
I published a piece at Lawfare, and then I, we republished it here at CSIS to try to think about what we should do about it. First, the U.S. has to engage. It's not hard to figure out what countries that Russia is going to target. Do they have natural resources? Is there a political security challenge? Is there a view that the U.S. and the West is not supportive, whether forthcoming on security or not aligned with their politics? And that's where the Russians go. That's why they're in Mozambique now. That's why they're in Guinea. And, you know, we're not doing enough on the engagement side. I was just refreshing um, some of my um, diplomatic history. And President Kennedy met with an African leader per capita once a month. Right. President Bush, uh, 43, met with lots of African leaders and President Obama had the big summit and President Trump has met in the Oval Office with two sub-Saharan African leaders. And so we're not doing the engagement. The perception is we're not there. We have to change that, not because of Russia, but because it's in our interest. Second, this goes back to my point earlier. We have to isolate, not elevate. Russia is not a great power in Africa, period. It may be a great power elsewhere, and there are things we have to do to compete, and the the framework may make sense in other places. This is the only place I know. And in sub-Saharan Africa, they are a minnow. And every time we talk about Russia like this big bear threatening the continent, we do exactly what Putin wants. So we've got to change our rhetoric. And then I think finally, there's a lot of things that we could be doing to make sure that it's not a permissive environment. You know, why aren't the UN and the US sanctions um, having bite in sub-Saharan Africa? Why aren't we using our tools more effectively to go after PMCs? And then I think we could do a lot more work in exposing the disinformation campaigns. We kind of have to kind of move the chapter beyond just looking and, and talking about what Russia's doing and actually think what an uh, affirmative policy look like. You guys can push back as well. Like, is this zero sum? What are the African perceptions of Russian engagement? And, and how should the West and African civil society and African governments work on minimizing the most malign parts of Russian engagement? Maybe I'll start, Simon, with you. So I don't have any particular thoughts on what the U.S. should or shouldn't do. Um, what I do want to say from an African perspective is that I think it's very dangerous to think that the malign intentions of one superpower can be solved by um, extra activity from another superpower. You know, balancing off superpowers against each other certainly didn't work out very well for Africa during the Cold War. I don't think it's going to work out very well for Africa today. So what I would like to see is... African governments take a much more muscular position when it comes to negotiating with all foreign powers. Um, and that involves a lot more coordination between them, presenting a, un a united front on key issues um, and working together. And uh, in an ideal world, what, what I would really like to see is uh, a, a sort of strong African union taking the lead on these issues, although I think we may be um, a little way away from that happening. That's an excellent point. And I, I'd like to see more Africans uh, dictating the terms of uh, what kind of engagement they want. I, I agree. Um, you know, I think it was the African populations that pushed their leaders uh, in the case of China when they felt that the deals that they were getting, that they were, uh, the Chinese companies were usurping um, manufacturing in these countries. It was the African populace and civil society that pushed their leadership. And in some cases, deals were negotiated, tr trade terms were changed. And I would hope that um, it took a while for leaders to wake up to what China was doing. I would hope that um, the African populace and African leaders are already woke 
and don't kind of buy into these things that the Russians supposedly are offering. But I also agree it would be a mistake to consider this zero-sum. There are things that the United States could and should be doing irrespective of whether Russia is in there, China is in there, India is in there. Another thing I would say is that you know, Russia, uh, Russia and Putin are attracted to authoritarian leaders um, and uh, leaders, leaders that um, ignore term limits, something that Putin is certainly interested in. And yet there's a whole generation of new leaders, new politicians in these countries, entrepreneurs, young people who don't want these, these Cold War legacies. These are the people that the United States should be engaging with. Uh, under the Obama administration, there was a youth summit. Those are the things that we should do and we should be making positive moves rather than trying to counter Russia's moves. Yeah, maybe I'll just pick up on that because one of the most significant challenges the United States will have in coming decades is in part this competition between democracy and authoritarianism. And Africa will play a role in that. And so far with Africa, but especially China, um, they are giving some of these African countries an alternative. And these countries are very... Um, skillfully able to play the United States off these countries. It dilutes conditionality. It dilutes the United States' ability to press for good governance reforms. And they're working together in international organizations. And so it really is, I think, about striking the balance. Yes, Africa is not our most important issue that we have to contend with. We're focused on the Indo-Pacific and on China, but we can't cede the space entirely because it is part of this bigger picture. And the United States, therefore, has an interest to engage, to show up, just like you said, um, because at the end of the day, we want to be able to have a, a say on th the rules. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't think this is zero sum. And I think that Africans have a lot of agency in shaping this. And, and we've seen this. We've seen uh, in the case of, of South Africa, where President Ramaphosa closed down the uh, the nuclear deal because it was it was corrupt. Uh, it was not what South Africa needed, and as uh, President Zuma and his cronies were profiting from it. Um, one of the things that I think is our strength and is a strategic flaw for the Russians is, as Karen said, Russians are going to just focus on the incumbents. They're going to go all in on the incumbents, whether that's using asymmetric uh, toolkit for you know social media manipulation and media manipulation, or they're going to use corruption to to sort of entrench them. But as I mentioned earlier, the continent is really unsettled as a political landscape, and we are going to see more of these guys turn over. We saw al-Bashir turn over, and while Sudan had a rep at the conference at Sochi, it was interesting to me that it wasn't... Uh, Hamdak, the civilian, it was the military element, Al-Burhan. And actually, even Al-Burhan's like most of our security, um, most of our equipment is from Russia. So we have interoperability with the Russian equipment. But I, I saw it as a much um, putting a lot more distance between Sudan and Russia than certainly Al-Bashir would have. So our big play is, I think, supporting Africans, focusing on our interests and I think that Russia will find that this approach that they have is going to be ineffective over the long run. 
Yeah, just I mean, just to Karen's point, the, the Russians, as long as the United States is playing a positive game, I don't think the Russians can compete with that. They don't make anything that Africans really want. They don't really have any sort of soft power. They don't have a proactive strategy, a way to advance influence. All they really do is disrupt. And so if we can continue to play that positive game, I think you outcompete the Russians in the long term. I think it's unfortunate that the the summit happened in the wake of the United States abandoning our Kurdish allies and and uh, ceding the space in Syria to Russia and Turkey. Um, and if you know, it's a bad demonstration. And so we have a lot of catching up to do, but I think we are capable of doing it. Simon, can I give you the, the last word? Any parting shots? I, I guess the thing I want to say is that I don't think we as sort of African civil society and, and media should be treating the Russians any different from how we treat um, any of the other major powers looking to, to you know, influence and trade with and um, benefit from this continent. South Africans are people who look at relations with a, a very um, unadored eye. I mean, with open, with open eyes. And I'm, all my South African friends are very quick to tell me what they think the U.S. government should or should not be doing. And I think amplifying that in the Russian context and amplifying that in the Chinese context, I think we'll all be in a better place if South Africans and Africans tell us exactly what they think about some of this action. So I want to thank our guests. This is actually the last episode of season one. We have done uh, 26 episodes this year. I want to thank all of our listeners for uh, their engagement, for subscribing, for telling their friends. We've got a great season two planned. We will tell you a little more about that in a couple of weeks. But thanks again. And I look forward to season two. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.